third annual Apopka International Jazz Fest, starring Pebo Bryson with host Kim Waters, along with Kayla Waters and Ken Ford, Saturday, March 25th at the Apopka Amphitheater. For complete details and tickets, log on to ApopkaInternationalJazzFest.com. Unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And coming up on this week's show, proud to bring back one of my former colleagues at WKIS back in the day, Tracy Clayton. He, of course, lives in the city of Houston now and does a lot of a lot of statistical work for the University of Houston. He's also done that kind of work for the Texans, the Astros, and whatnot. So Tracy will be along in just a few moments as he stands by in the virtual green room. So a little follow-up from my uh, previous podcast that uh, we did earlier in the week. My first on-location effort as uh, Joe Finger, Jay Cresswell, and uh, Charles Griesmer joined me podcast in a car <laughs> so uh that was uh that was fun as we did that before the orioles and tigers game at the joker joker Marchant stadium in lakeland and uh it was a good time there uh, a couple of notes from that uh so uh it was hotter than you know what you know first of all it was like we couldn't believe we we're going to a game in february and then of course it was hot as heck. So as we walked over to the car, the car had been in the sun for a little bit. So I had to blow the AC full blast. So you hear that in the background, um, which, you know, wasn't all bad, but, uh, if you notice that, that was what that was, was the AC all the way cranked up and dropped down to 68 degrees. So we would not, uh, uh, have any dire issues <laughs> while, while recording the podcast. In the course, then the game itself. So we had talked about the pitch clock and everything like that. My early return on the pitch clock goes like this. I like it. And the biggest thing that's addressed is keeping the batters in the batter box, batter's box. You know, I mean, come on. No, much too much time wasted in between pitches when the batter steps out of the box. So he's got to be in the box. Pitcher's got to be ready to pitch. And it was interesting because, you know, the first four innings took less than an hour. And, of course, Jay made point of that, which automatically jinxed things because then, you know, I think, what was it? The Orioles put up a nine spot in the fifth. Uh, but, you know, in a 10 to 5 game, that's what the score was when we left in the, uh, uh, the bottom of the eighth inning. So 15 runs were scored and the game was still just a little over two hours old. So... I think that is a mission well accomplished in that regard. And I don't think people are going to miss the shift, to be all honest with you. I mean, I'm glad my team won't employ it anymore. I did not like the shift. Still disagree with taking the managerial ability away in that regard, but it's going to it's going to be better more opportunities to score. It's it's good. The, the the product is going to be better by the by these two things. Uh, we didn't address the one topic we did not address was the uh, the number of times a pitcher can throw over to a runner on base, so he gets two throws. Um, that'll be interesting to see. I'm curious 
is to a guy like Max Fried from the Braves, who has a tremendous pickoff move. Um, how much will that affect him? You know, because he has a great pickoff move, it may not affect him much. But for other pitchers, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to waste both your both your uh, bullets thrown over to first base too early. Uh, for you know, definitely a base stealing threat that would be over there. So that would be uh, kind of something to be uh, in mind of. And then the other thing that uh, stood out from that day and back on the podcast again was, you know, I was reciting all the great things about the praise and I failed to mention Spencer Strider, the rookie of the year pitcher, uh, who looks like he's got a great career ahead of him, health permitting. Uh, how did I leave him out? for the terrific rookie campaign that he had. Uh, so I did name a lot of good names, but uh, uh, that was one I was remiss as uh, far as, as that goes. So that was a good time. We enjoyed uh, enjoyed the day uh, with spring training baseball. Hopefully I have another game in my, uh, in my future uh, during the month of March. Gosh, man, just think come this weekend, we'll be a week away from Selection Sunday, I can't wait. Let the madness begin. We're back with Tracy Clayton right after this. Central Florida, it's Pebo Bryson. Baby, can you stop the rain? Double Grammy and double Oscar Award winner, Pebo Bryson, performing live at the third annual Apopka International Jazz Festival, Saturday, March 25th, at the beautiful Apopka Amphitheater, hosted by world-renowned saxophonist Kim Water, along with urban keyboardist Kayla Water and jazz violinist King of String, Ken Ford. Pebo Bryson, live. For complete details, log on to ApopkaInternationalJazzFest.com. All right, my pleasure to welcome to the program a former colleague of mine uh, at WKIS here in Orlando. And uh, we will talk about the good old days of radio, but uh, we have Tracy Clayton joining us. We're going to talk about his his work as a statistician for a lot of the major sports happening out in Houston, Texas. Tracy, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. News and more on 74. <laughs> News and more on 74. Wow, you remember that. That's That, that does bring some uh, old memories back. <laughs> That's an old, old promo jingle for sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. So you've been in Houston like the last 20 years. And, of course, I know you, you did uh, statistician work here in the Orlando area with the magic and whatnot. Um, so... You have pretty much touched all the sports out there. So with the the Rockets, the Texans, University of Houston, the Astros, uh, kind of want to go through those one by one in what you did for what you do and what you did for some of those organizations. So uh, um, let's start first with uh, with the University of Houston, since we're in the midst of college basketball season. The the Cougs, of course, the number one team in the country. And uh, so. Tell me what you're doing uh, there as far as the stats are concerned. So I'm the official scorer for men's men's basketball. Um, I'm on the women's basketball stat crew primarily as the official scorer, but I'm not able to work as many games because I'm also the official scorer for the Houston Rockets. So my primary stats responsibility is the official scorer for uh, Cougar basketball. And if you've ever been to a college basketball game, the official scorer is the one that sits at or near midcourt with the referee shirt on, just like the officials that are on the floor. So I'm keeping a paper book that goes back since they started keeping stats, I would assume, and I keep track of 
individual and team points, uh, the time that points were scored, who the points were scored by, obviously, individual and team fouls, uh, timeouts, media timeouts, um, those sorts of things that, that you would keep on paper. And then there's a totally separate crew that handles all the computer stats that create the box score that you see online and in print after games. Okay. And now are so aside from them, so you're, you're pretty much the guy is right. As far as the, <laughs> as far as it goes, right? Well, I'm one of, I'm one of many, if you're talking about all of the, the different sports, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll just take the Cougars, for example, Cougar basketball. And this is going to be true of, of any uh, major Division One basketball program. They're going to have an official score. They're going to have a minimum of two or three people that are keeping the computer stats, which are all of the other ancillary stats. Shots made and missed, rebounds, assists, steals, turnovers, um, uh, other special data that you may need to put in if there's a technical foul called that was on. So that shows up in the, the printed play-by-play. Then you also have your the rest of the table crew. You have a, a scoreboard operator who's putting up the points and things for the people in the arena, a game clock operator, and a shot clock operator. And then there's other people behind the scenes, the people that run replay and the game administrator and, and all of those sorts of things. It, it really has become a production from when – you and I were back in school and, and people were scrambling just to try to find people that, that knew how to push a button and, and write a crooked number. <laughs> so what is the biggest challenge you face when, when doing that? I would say it's um, the speed of the game when you have two elite teams or conversely, and I hate to say it, but two really bad teams. Um because your head is down so much of the time writing in the book, if you have something that happens quickly, you look up as the official score and you hope that you haven't missed the basket. And if you have, you hope that the people sitting around you see the person that scored or the person that committed the foul so that uh, you can make sure you record it accurately. Probably the other thing that would, would surprise people and stress some people out from time to time is the amount of interaction that the official score has with the referees on the floor, making sure that they've called the right foul, questioning them if you think they've called something incorrectly. Uh, you'd be amazed how many times they signal to you 13 and they meant to signal 31. They put their fingers up backwards. It happens all the time. And what you'll do is you'll give them a little crooked head nod or in my case, I actually mouth the number back as they're signaling it, and then they usually catch it and correct themselves. Um, you're also responsible for making sure that that the uh, within reason that the coaches know how many timeouts they have left. Uh, if a player gets into foul trouble, most of these teams have so many assistants now that they keep up with that without much uh, interaction or intervention with the with the table crew. But if they do come over and ask, you have to be prepared. And you also have to be prepared to deal with an irate coach if he thinks you've made a mistake. And and it probably happens once every four or five games where they think you've credited a point wrong or you've missed a three that should have been a two or vice versa. Uh, you've credited the foul to the wrong player. And the fortunate thing today is with replay, in a situation like that, the officials will stop the game and, and go over and make it right via replay where – even five or ten years ago, that was not an option. And if they couldn't independently validate 
what you had in the book um, or independently dispute correctly what you had in the book, then what you have goes. And, of course, I find it interesting to, of course, you're, you're, you're a UCF grad, but you are, you know, doing this work for the University of Houston, but you have to certainly admire what Kelvin Sampson has done with that basketball program. I, I know you're working while you're doing that, but I'm sure you can appreciate all the, the greatness that's going on there with the basketball program. Without question, Jeff, uh, Coach Sampson's been there nine years now. Um, this season, he notched his 700th career win. Uh, a great many of those have been at U of H. It was actually pretty funny. Uh, his first couple of years, he had the team that he inherited, they couldn't shoot three-pointers to save their life. They were really, really bad. But that's what he did, and we're all scratching our head going, what in the world is this guy doing? Well, if you look back at his history, you'll remember that right before he joined the U of H staff, he was an assistant with the Rockets. So he has come into U of H, and, and in, in my view, I could be totally incorrect, he is trying to recruit kids that know how to play or want to play an NBA-style uh, three-point offense, fast offense, and relentless defense. And these kids are coming here knowing that when they enter the draft or go to a, a draft camp, they are going to be prepared to play at an NBA level. And I think that's why he's been successful getting the kids that he has. Um, he demands excellence. Uh, the kids love him. It may not look that way sometimes, but they really do. I mean, it is a family. They are tight-knit from his wife and daughter and son, who's the number one assistant, to all of the managers and trainers and uh, the, the other ancillary coach, coaching staff. It, it, it really it has been fun to watch this program evolve in the last nine years. Yeah, you know, I tell you what impresses me so much about their defense they're 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 so quick. It looks like there's six guys on the floor. <laughs> yes, and you watch them. You know, uh, we play tomorrow night. Um, I think we host Wichita State. Uh, it's a national TV game, so um, not to take uh, viewers or listeners away from anything else. But if you're out there, um, watch them on defense. What they do with their hands, they do not well. They try not to defend with their hands. They defend with their hips and their legs. And if you can do that and keep your body in front of your offensive player, you are going to be successful. It's when you see them commit silly fouls, it's when they start reaching. And I promise you, if you watch tomorrow night, you go, wow, Tracy was right. That's how they play defense. <laughs> and they're really good at it. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely keep note of that. So uh, when you do the work for the Rockets, is it exactly the same? Is it different? Tell me a little bit about that. Um, it, it is essentially the same. There are things we keep track of in the NBA game that you do not keep track of in the college game. For example, you have defensive three seconds and delay of game that even though um, delay of game can happen in the college game, it's tracked a little bit differently. Uh, of course, the pro game, offensive fouls are not team fouls in the college game. It's different. Um Technical fouls count as personals in the in the college game, but not in the pro game. You also interact a little bit differently with the officials um, in in that most of the officials that will keep a little cheat sheet that they'll come over during timeouts and they'll write down plays that they want to go look at it at halftime on their replay system. So they may come to me and say, "Hey, when did uh, 
Jalen Green pick up his second foul or, or when was that charge on LBJ or uh, things like that. And we uh, it, it's really amazing the rapport that the table crews have uh, in both the NBA and college. Um, when I first started doing this, my goodness, almost 40 years ago now or over 40 years ago now at the college level, you were at the table, but the officials were the officials, and you were the people there to push buttons and write numbers. And now it's a team. Uh, the officials will come over and say, we're a team. If we're about to make a mistake, get us out of the weeds. And um, uh, when, when you go into a game knowing that the officials appreciate what you do, I think you focus a little harder. Mm-hmm. And you know, you bring up an interesting aspect because obviously fans have feelings about referees one way or the other, right? And it's usually yes. in the negative vein. So, yes. so how have you come to appreciate what the what the officials on the floor do, um, considering you know, <laughs> considering all that that stuff that's against them, <laughs> right? Um, it, it's an impossible job. It, it really is. Um, I can tell you, and I'll talk specifically about the NBA game, because it's probably the one that gets scrutinized more than the college game. I think a lot of people understand that that even though college officials are paid really good money, it's totally different than the people who do it at the NBA level, and that's all they do. It's their full-time job. When the Magic came into to existence back in the late 80s, there were really good officials, there were average officials, and there were really bad officials. And and people will say, well, that still exists today. But what I have seen, having worked, um, seeing these guys come in, starting with uh, the G League All-Star, and, and if we get into that, I can explain to you about how I know that. But these guys that come up from the G League, and it's their first year in the NBA, and you watch them doing G League stuff, and you go, wow. These guys really get it. They're consistent. They don't blow the whistle early. And then two or three years later, they're falling into the same traps that the old guys did. It's like the old guys get a hold of them and give them the bad habits. (laughs) And what I have seen over the last five or ten years is that's happening less and less and less. I see a lot more consistency from official to official. There are still some officials that like to call traveling more than others. There are officials that like to call arm blocks more than others. And there are still officials that, quite frankly, I look out there and go, this game has passed you by, or you're not ready for this level of basketball yet. Mm. But there are people way above my pay grade that get to decide whether or not they officiate an NBA game. Mm. Um, The other thing that I think most people know, except maybe the truly casual fan, you look at the, the, the quote unquote, the missed foul on LeBron James at the end of that game two or three weeks ago where he went absolutely nuts. And um, I think it was Eric Davis was the lead official that night. And he made the comment after the game. Yes, we made a mistake. Well, If a player has a disciplinary action taken against him by the league, it's very public knowledge. He's been suspended. He's been fined. He can appeal, whatever that happens to be. When that happens to the officials, you don't know about it. Uh, I believe Adam Silver actually sort of commented about that during his State of the NBA address during All-Star Weekend. But officials do lose assignments or get suspended or have fines levied against them. We're not privy to any of that information but it happens, and I, I honestly believe that if the NBA would be more transparent about that, 
that I think fans might be a little more forgiving. Hey, he screwed up, but he paid the price. Mm, yeah, I think that's a very valid point there. And with college officials now, from what I understand, these guys are ba- basically independent contractors, right? They're that they're that's correct. That they're picking up assignments here, there, and yonder, no matter the conference. That that's correct. The, the the best officials in the country are going to work games for all of the major conferences. The exception to that is somebody who's based in the East Coast or maybe the Southeast might not go out and do a Pac-12 game at Washington or Oregon. But if you watch a Big Ten game, a Big 12 game, an American Conference game, an SEC game, or an ACC game, if you watch five games in five nights, if you could find every game that's on, I guarantee you, you will see an official five nights in a row working in five different conferences. Mm, that's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty vigorous schedule, I would say. It, it is, and and they, they make pretty good money. I actually think that in some cases it hurts them. You go from a game where the two teams score 90 points apiece and you're running up and down the whole game, and then you fly from, say, Houston to Chapel Hill, and you're going to call North Carolina and Duke the next night. It, I just don't see mentally how you can stay on top of your game more than two or three days in a row. But I'm telling you, these guys are going every day. And they're not flying charters like all these teams are. <laughs> yeah, the uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, I'm sure. That's right. Yeah. So we've covered basketball. Now you also uh, do work for the Houston Texans. So uh, give me the lowdown on that. I, I did. I actually retired from the Texans at the end of last season, the 21-22 season, if you count the season really going into the 1st of January. And for the Texans, and and I still do for University of Houston football, I'm the press box announcer. So people go, oh, wow, you're the guy here in the stadium. No, I do the same thing that the stadium hype announcer does without the hype. So the goal, Jeff, and you've been in football press boxes, the, the goal is to give the media what happened during a play so that they're not constantly looking down at their flip card or their speed card. So it would be um, – Castle pass, complete to Clayton, gain of six, tackle by Jones, second down and four to 33. And that's what you're doing at the end of each play. And I'm sitting in the box with the stat crew, and I'm listening to them call and construct the play. And then I then parse all of that and spit it back out into the PA mic that goes throughout the press box. And I also have a special shorthand that I use to keep track of every play so that I can go back and reconstruct, you know, uh, uh, Jeff has completed six passes in a row, or that's his first interception in his last 20 attempts. Um, you can pick up things like that very quickly. And for U of H football, I actually do a whole lot of game prep before every game for both teams. So I'll have superlatives ready. Jeff has just become the number two passer in U of H history and, and things like that. So, um, I'm still it's here. fun. I really do enjoy it. I've been I've been doing both of these, both football and basketball, for ten plus years for U of H, um, and I don't consider it a job. It's a lot of work. It can be thankless work at times. I promise you, it doesn't pay anything at the collegiate level. <laughs> uh, but uh, but you're doing it for the pride of the school, and uh, I'm UCF black and gold through and through, and the folks here at U of H know it. I needle them every time the Knights come into town, and, of course, they give it to me when, when the Knights take it on the chin as well. But uh, 
uh, I've adopted U of H as, as my local home team, and uh, they've been fun to watch. Yeah, there's definitely no question about that. And you have also covered Major League Baseball with the Astros. I did. That was actually probably the most fun with the most stress that anybody could possibly imagine. And in in those situations, uh, when I worked for Major League Baseball, uh, you actually work for Major League Baseball and not the team. Everywhere else you work for the team. Uh, The NFL has changed that now, but in my case – we were working for MLB Advanced Media, MLBAM, and the job that I had was to do the data input that created the animation that you would see on MLB.com. So if you clicked on the game day animation and you could see the pitch come in, you know, all of that data is automated from machines. But then I would click on that dot when it came when it came into my computer. And then I would tell the program, was it a ball? Was it a called strike, a swinging strike, a foul? And if the ball was hit into play, you would enter things. Was it a bunt? Was it a single? Was it an out? Who made the out? Was it a you know a six three put out? Was it a six four three double play? Was there an error in that? And you just you weren't allowed to make mistakes because that you've got thousands upon thousands of eyes on it, and the the game moves slow enough theoretically that you shouldn't make mistakes, but it happens. You know you. You think you've got everything in, then all of a sudden you realize, oh, my gosh, the guy went first to third on that play, and I only moved him to second. So you have to go in and do an edit or have your auditor who's monitoring a number of games at once do an edit. The challenge with an MLB game is, even though it pays well, um, for a 7 o'clock first pitch, you have to be in the press box online, logged in, ready to go an hour ahead of time. So 6.05, logged in connected support person says good to go let's say the game ends at 10 o'clock so you've got a three-hour game it takes 10 or 15 minutes for the official score to validate his box score with what you've put in the system and then um, once that's done then then you finalize the game and then it becomes the official record on mlb.com and then you get to pack up and go home so People think, yeah, you're there for three hours. No, I'm there from 6 o'clock until 10.30, and then I have a 35-mile drive home to, to my home in suburban Houston. And, and so that six, the, the, you know, it ends up being a five- or six-hour uh, event from the time you leave wherever you are to get to the ballpark and you get home. So, uh, And then my real job, my day job, I have to be in at 6, 6, 6 or 6.15 in the morning, so that 5.15 alarm can come really, really early. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and I actually stopped doing Astros after the 2017 World Series uh, because we found out, you know, I had done six or seven or eight years of really, really bad Astros baseball, you know, 100-plus lost seasons. Yeah. And we were all doing it going, we're going to get to work the playoffs when this team gets good. Well, then you find out when the playoffs come that the league steps in and takes over all the positions. And we're like, yep, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not working five-hour regular season games if I don't get to work a playoff game. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Of course, you know, when you're when you're talking about doing the animation stuff, I find that interesting. So so I can now have a little more sympathy, like on the score bug on TV, when they don't move that runner <laughs> from yes. second to third, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, and the TV score bug, just a little inside poker, the TV uh, the, the TV score bug is actually a system that the TV trucks run themselves. Mm, okay. They will have a, a bug operator that, that is just 
taking the result of whatever they see on their screens and then they're trying to move everybody around. But then again, they also have to go with what they see reported from the press box as well. Mm -hmm. If the press box uh, data feed that they get indicates that there's been an out recorded, they have to show that there's been an out recorded until somebody proves to them otherwise that the data they're receiving is wrong. So, so yes, to your point, when you see a mistake on the TV bug, give give them a little bit of slack. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a lot harder than it looks, and and you know, and having done stats. Uh, myself for ESPN back in the day, and I'm sure you know that was before technology. You know, right? Uh, you know, I I can remember you know just coming out of there with just a massive headache because you're trying to do all these numbers real fast. You got people yelling in your ear that they want that information, you know, faster than the two seconds you gave it to them. So, <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. And and it's really funny now in the day of with, with the the computerized stats. The the uh, the graphic systems in the trucks, the Chirons, as as we called it in the day. I don't know what they call it now, but um, all of these stats have a number that go with them. So, like the home team might all start with a thousand, and the visiting team might all start with two thousand. So, LeBron James's points might be uh, uh, if his number was twenty three, it might be twelve thirty one. So one twenty three one, and that would be his points. One twenty three two might be his rebounds. So the, the graphics operator just types in that number and then it pulls that data from the computer and puts it into a predetermined format that they already have. Um, anyone who ever gets the chance to sit in a TV truck at a sporting event, do it. It is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is amazing stuff. Uh, so I have to, uh, you know, back in the day when when the Magic played their first game, so I have to, you know, I thanked you at the time, but you're responsible for one of my great sports memories because my buddies and I, so uh, the four of us bought two seats for the Magic and I drew the first the first game. So I go and Tracy comes bouncing up the stairs and say, hey, are you available to help Sunshine do stats? They don't have anybody to do stats. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to get me and my buddy, we get to go down and sit next to Chip and the Goose and yep. and doing doing uh, some of the stat work uh, for that, and you know just getting to sit courtside on that amazing night when Orlando won their yep. first ever game, even though it didn't count for anything other than yep. winning a preseason game, it was still a great memory, and and, and I still can vividly remember. Uh, in the fourth quarter, when the Magic came back, the Pistons missed something like 12 or 13 straight shots, and I fed that to the goose. And he kind of looked at me wide-eyed, like either he couldn't believe it or he or I was thinking, oh, God, my handwriting couldn't be that bad. But uh, <laughs> so he he blurts he blurts that out and they they get it up on the screen, too. And, you know, that still is like one of the great sports memories that I have. So I, I, I will thank you again for that. <laughs> So I got to tell you that that game, uh, my wife had bought me season tickets. And so we had seats up in the nosebleed and we were walking around. And of course, from from our dealings, Jeff, you were in this as well. When when David was our USFL, David Steele was our USFL play by play announcer. So I knew David and all of those guys. And I had been down talking to them and and um, uh, I knew one of the other stats people on the floor that was working. So I was talking to them and I'm like, well, I got to go to my seat. So as we're walking up the steps to get to the concourse, Paul Porter goes, may I have your attention, please? 
And I turned to my wife and said, well, Tracy Clayton, please report to the Sunshine Network table. And I swear to you, Paul Porter said, well, Tracy Clayton, please report to the Sunshine Network table courtside. And my wife looked at me and said, you got to be kidding. So, of course, I go down there and they told me, hey, we're, we're our stats guy didn't show up. He's got an issue. Can you do it? And I thought about it long and hard. And I said, you know what? This would be a dream come true. But tonight I want to be a fan. I will only have one time in my life to be a fan at the very first game of an NBA team. So it worked out really well for both of us. You got to have the thrill of a lifetime doing that. I got to have the thrill of a lifetime sitting with my wife in those seats. And then year two, uh, when David's statistician went back to the University of Florida, um, then uh, then I was able to move down there and become his stats guy. So it is a, it is amazing, and of course, uh, when we worked together at WKIS, uh, yes. those those are great times. Chris Mad Dog Russo <clears throat> before. Ah, can you say that? Auto <laughs> racing is not a sport. <laughs> <laughs> that was one and two. The uh, the other thing. Remember the uh, you know Don Schul is overrated. Yeah, <laughs> that was the yes. other one that that drove everybody crazy. But yes, it it helped make him made made him what he is today. So um, you know you were working at WDBO prior to that. Uh, yes, because you were working with the Starship, the the yes, big mobile right. the big mobile units. Uh, I was the Starship Commander was my title, hokiest title ever. Yes. Uh, and then you came over to work for us and uh, and, and and whatnot. And uh, uh, what is what is your fondest memory of the WKIS days besides the jingle? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it was probably the fact that I met some of the best people I've ever worked with. You're among that group, Chris Russo. When when I started working with him and sort of producing his show, and you found out how much of a genius this guy is, a walking encyclopedia. And I know he rubs people the wrong way because of just the way he talks and everything, but I've never met a better interviewer in my life to this day, a a more fair interviewer. So that's number one. Um, But then all the other people, you know, Jim Phillips, that I produced his show when he started the Phillips file. I did that for a little bit. Working with Bob James, who did the morning show for a while. And I would fill in when his producer uh, needed to go on vacation or was out sick. Uh, my very, very good friend, Gene Witt, who did air traffic. Yep. Um, and so I flew with him and was the backup air traffic reporter. You know, he would go off and do something. They'd hire a pilot and I would do those reports. And for those that don't know, Gene and his wife, Kathy, who was the traffic reporter at um, is the station in the 900s. At, uh, W-H-O-O. W-H-O-O. Yeah, W-H-O-O. Right, right, right. Uh, they both became airline captains, I believe, at Delta. I know he's at Delta, and I can't remember if she was at Delta or Atlanta mm-hmm. or uh, American. Yeah. But both made it big. And then just a real quick sidebar on that, their kids, one of them ended up being the starting quarterback at Harvard, and the other one was the starting quarterback at Yale. Yes. So it's just amazing. So you've got those people. um, People that people would have never heard of, uh, John Loving, who is the chief engineer, who taught me really the things that I used that got me into the career that I have today with IT. You know, he taught me IT when IT wasn't a thing. And it was radio engineering, learning how to troubleshoot things that uh, that you wouldn't know how to troubleshoot without somebody with his experience looking over your shoulder and letting you make mistakes. Um 
Uh, I love the the little building we were in over on West Colonial Drive mm-hmm. uh, uh, on top of that, the old flagship bank building, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And, uh, you know, we just had a blast. We really did. Uh, who are other? Clive Thomas. Uh, uh, oh, goodness. Who Gene was Burns, the? Uh, Gene Burns. Yep. Did Gene Burns was before uh, Jim Phillips. But the uh, Tom McCarthy. Yes, yes. Yes, that's uh, or was he there? Was he at? He might have been at DBO. He was at DBO. Was um, at DBO. It was yeah. Randy something. It was the the garden guy for KIS. I, I know who I know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. There were yeah. There was a lot of tremendous people there. Boy, you you know you mentioned like so. I was like the I was an intern for Bob James, and he oh wow, and he taught me so much. I mean, he was yep. a, he was a comedic genius. Uh, he know, was. If he'd have been on an FM with big ratings, he, yes, <laughs> he would have been very big here. Um, but but he also taught me a lot about you know he, the the one thing he told me when I was an intern. He said a lot of people roll through here for the grade. Come in and do this like you want this job, and you know that stuck with me. So that was uh, right. The the best words I heard coming in the door. So. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, there's so many people that have helped shape my career, and I'm sure your career the same way. Uh, that I don't, I don't remember anyone that I worked with in Orlando that had the ego that was made them unapproachable or standoffish. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit until they got to know who you were, but that a lot of times that was just their shyness more than anything. You mm-hmm. think all these radio people are these extroverts, and in a lot of cases, they're not. Yeah. That's very, very, very true. Um, uh, and of course, the 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 person that I I just uh, love and admire to this day is David Steele. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've known David for forty plus years, and he is just the pros pro. Uh, you know that anybody that's listened to a magic radio or TV broadcast since their inception in eighty eight eighty nine knows what kind of a guy he is, and uh, it's the stuff behind the scenes, his wit and his humor. Um, can I tell a real quick David please, Steele story? Please. I love David okay. Steele. Please. So <laughs> we were doing, I was, I think I had migrated over from stats and I was now working for the magic as their uh, IT network manager, whatever, but I still work game nights and I became his radio engineer. And we had the father of Robert Earl. Robert Earl's junior was the, if I'm not mistaken, was the, founder of Planet Hollywood. And his dad was like a popular singer from the UK. And they asked him to sing the national anthem one night. So he starts and he gets through the first, you know, what we would call sort of the first verse and he forgets the words. So he starts over and he gets to the same spot again and he starts over. Now we carried the anthem live every broadcast Third time he starts over, he gets to the same spot again. He forgets the words, so he starts humming. And the crowd fills in the words, and then he picked in when he could, and they get to the end of the anthem. He gets a very nice ovation from the crowd because it's clear this is an Englishman trying to sing our anthem. And David Steele goes without missing a beat. That was Mr. Robert Earl Sr. with several renditions of our national anthem. (laughs) Oh, that's just that's dead solid perfect, <laughs> you know. No. And, that, and that's David. That's absolute David Steele. He'll be. We'll be right back with the starting lineups right after this. You know. Yeah. Uh, no. I. I. You know. 
when when David was uh, uh, doing the USFL for the Renegades, you know, it was great to get yep. to know him then. And then, you know, and, the, and there's a whole generation doesn't realize he was the voice of the Gators. Uh, That's right. You know, so uh, before Mick Huber. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's had a, a great distinguished career and, and, and really just one of the nicest people you'll ever, ever meet. Uh, you know, when when I was at WGTO, uh, we would do some uh, we would do some programming centered around the magic. And he would come on with us, even though, uh, you know, the magic were on WDVO. You know, he right. was still gracious enough to give us his time. And, and yeah, he was a uh, he is he is truly one of the best. Yeah, he really is. And I got to see them when the magic came to town this year. Um, I had actually just had knee surgery and uh, uh, was there with tickets that night. wasn't back to working yet. And but I made sure I wanted to see him because I missed him the last couple of trips. So I got to see him and Jeff Turner. Uh, unfortunately, Dante wasn't there. Uh, Dante and I go way back. Uh, uh, and then another person who people may not realize used to work for the Magic is Whit Watson. Yes, who who does golf for Westwood One now? I guess. And and Whit and I worked together at the Magic. He started as an intern, and then of course went to ESPN. And uh, another great guy, he Dennis Newman. Yep. Uh, Yep, uh, Richie Autobato. So, yeah, that's, you know the the names that we can throw out, Jeff. You and I. It's not name dropping. It's it's fond memories. Um, you know, I was I was a nobody. I was a guy that did radio stats. I was a guy that did radio engineering. But these guys treat everyone as if the event can't happen if they're not in their seat doing what they do. Mm-hmm. And when you have people who are so well-known and well-respected treat you that way, it makes you work harder. It makes you appreciate the, the, uh, the great opportunity that we've been given. How many people would kill to have my job in Houston doing the stats that I do? Uh, we hear it all the time. Oh, I do your job for free. You would for about two games. <laughs> then you go, yep, no, I can't do it. <laughs> Absolutely true. So before I let you go, so no. on your Twitter profile is, uh, is is your picture as a contestant on The Price is Right. So yes. please tell me when did that happen and how did you do? That was uh, back in 2015. Uh, my family and I had actually decided to go to Stanford to watch the UCF Stanford game. Okay. I believe it was 2015. And That's so I convinced right. my wife. Let's fly through Los Angeles because I want to see if I can get on the prices right. I've been a fan of the show since it went on the air in 1972. And I'd been in the audience once before, and the lady next to me got chosen, and she actually won a car. So um, long story short, you, you get your tickets, you stand in line outside, and everyone in the audience has to be, at least when they had an audience, you had to be eligible to be a contestant in order to be in the audience. You could exclude yourself from being a contestant, but if you weren't eligible, you couldn't be in the audience at that time. Then they interview everybody, and they decide right then whether or not you're going to get on stage, but you don't know if you're going to make it until they call your name. So they call my name, and they actually said, Tracy Clanton. (laughs) And so I jumped up in the air, and I went, oh, crap. And I went, you know what? They're going to have to drag me back to my seat. So I got down there. The, the item up for bids was a uh, meat smoker, a digital smoker. Um, I won. I was the first contestant after the showcase showdown. So, you know, game number four of six. I won. I got on stage. I was like a $630 prize. And I played for a hot tub and a tiki bar. 
with a little margarita mixer. And I'm going, yeah, this is great. And in my head, I'm going, I've got a, a pool and a spa in the backyard. What am I going to do with a hot tub and a tiki bar? But And then the game that I played is freeze frame. Uh, you hear the little camera click and the numbers move. And it's really funny. I can see behind there's a little probably an intern wearing a pair of headphones, turning a crank. Every time he heard the shutter, he would turn the crank, and that's how the numbers moved. <laughs> so I ended up not winning that prize, which was great because then I didn't have to pay taxes on a $7,000 prize. <laughs> so experience of a lifetime. Anyone who thinks they might want to go, do it. It's so much fun. Yeah, so did you go – so so were you in the second wheel spin uh to get it in the showcase? second wheel spin, I was in the second wheel spin. The lady that beat me ended up winning the showcase that day. And I, I spun um, 65 on my first spin. And I'm going, should I spin again? And what went through my head was, if I stay on 65, I know I'm going to be on stage for at least one more person. Where if I spin and go over, I'm done, right? Yeah. So I'm going to stay. And so the the girl that beat me, her she actually was about to flip to a number that would have put her over a dollar and put me in the showcase. The little arm went down. You hear the beep on the wheel because it you know it tripped the micro switch or whatever for the speaker, but it didn't trip the peg, so it stayed on the lower number, and she ended up beating me, you know, eighty five to sixty five instead of her going over a dollar. Oh, so close. So close. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but yes, but that's, that's an awesome experience. Thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for being on the show. I, you know, I, I always find the behind the scenes work at uh, with broadcasting and with sporting events to be very fascinating. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a how the soup is made kind of guy. So I Me like, too. I like hearing, I like hearing, hearing that stuff. So thank you for sharing all that with us. Jeff, let, let me throw out real quick. I get asked a lot, especially by some of the younger people that I see, how do you do what it is that you do? How do you break in? And the thing to do is, even in a city like Orlando, there's going to be a high school or a junior college or a Rollins college that needs people to help out on the table crew, help out on the stack crew. Go volunteer. Go sit and watch somebody do it. Go volunteer. Go tell them and say, hey, I'd like to learn. That's how I got started. I started in high school. It went to college. And it's led to uh, this fact. This last year was the first year in 18 years that I did not work the NBA All-Star Weekend mm. because I couldn't get off work. So you can say you personally know a 17-time NBA All-Star. <laughs> there, so. you, there you go. I've only been to one All-Star game, so you're way ahead of me. <laughs> way ahead. Way ahead. And that's enough. that'd be a show in and of itself, just behind the scenes at NBA All-Star. That's pretty fascinating as well. Yeah. Well, we may have to uh, do that again on another episode. So <laughs> Glad to do it, Jeff. Awesome. Thanks again for being on. appreciate it. Thanks for the time. So I was inspired by Tracy's appearance on the show and him talking about The Price is Right. I thought that would be our TV theme for this week. The Price is Right, as Tracy mentioned, debuted in 1972. I believe that was 51 years ago. Come uh, come September. That's, that's crazy. Of course, Bob Barker, the longest-running host from 1972 until 2007, and that's when Drew Carey took over. And interestingly enough, The Price is Right did live before that. It was actually a 1950s game show that debuted in 1956 on NBC as a daytime 
series and then also had a primetime series that uh, happened once a week. And they were one of the few game shows who survived those big rigging scandals in the 1950s where things were rigged and all that good stuff. So, uh, And that ran from 56 to 65. It switched networks from NBC to ABC in 1963. But the current version of 51 years, The Price is Right, still on CBS. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, Johnny Olson was the original announcer who made the words famous, Come on down! Also, uh, Rod Roddy, Rich Fields uh, were announcers. George Gray, uh, the current announcer. And, of course, they have also were known for Barker's Beauties, the models who showed off the merchandise that was being bid upon and played for in games and whatnot. That did not come without scandal, of course, uh, with some uh, uh, allegations of sexual harassment from Bob Barker. Um, but as far as game show goes, it's, it's a, it is a tremendous, uh, uh, program and, uh, you know, it did start off as a half hour show originally and also had a nighttime version that, uh, what was it? Dennis James, I think was the host of that. And then, uh, and then Bob Barker, uh, came through when James's contract was not reduced. So he's hosting both versions. They tried another primetime edition in the eighties with Tom Kennedy as the host. It uh, only lasted one season. So the daytime price is right, uh, which has been in the 11 o'clock time slots now for, gosh, probably 40-something years now, uh, has been just such a staple of the CBS daytime lineup. The Price is Rights, our TV theme for this week. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer Self is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net. Central Florida, it's Pebo Bryson. I'm so into you, Double Grammy and Double Oscar Award winner Evo Bryson performing live at the third annual Apopka International Jazz Festival Saturday, March 25th at the beautiful Apopka Amphitheater hosted by world-renowned saxophonist Kim Waters along with urban keyboardist Kayla Waters and jazz violinist the King of String Ken Ford It's an evening under the stars where you'll enjoy incredible music delicious food and drinks along with music lovers such as yourself It's Bebo Bryson Live me and the girls will be right there. Saturday, March 25th at the third annual Apopka International Jazz Festival. Gates open at 4 p.m. For complete details and tickets, visit ApopkaInternationalJazzFest.com. Sponsored in part by United Arts of Central Florida, Orlando Health, Florida Blue, and Tito's Handcrafted Vodka. Get your tickets now.